Welcome to Around the Table, a podcast hosted by Geneva School of Bernie. Please join Academic Dean Dirk Russell as he hosts conversations to foster growth, learning, and connections to the glory of Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining me around the table. I'm joined today by Rhetoric School Headmaster Rob Shelton, Humanities Department Head Aaron Southwick, and Rhetoric School Teacher Scott Milam. Thank you all for being here today. Today we will talk about the mind, in particular the importance of believers having the mind of Christ, or to put it another way, the importance of believers thinking Christianly. To begin with, let me summarize some of what Scripture says about the mind. First, we are commanded to love God with all our mind. We are told that unbelievers walk in the futility of their mind. We are told that we have the mind of Christ, but we are also commanded to have the mind of Christ. We also learn that while we have the mind of Christ, our minds need to be renewed. And so for the believer, the mind of Christ is something that we possess, but it is also something that needs to be strengthened and used. And so with that being said, I'll ask the three of you, what is the mind of Christ? Well, for me, um, it all starts with the the central claim of Christianity, and that is that Jesus is Lord. And if when through faith we affirm that, uh, that then should have ramifications for everything. Uh, and especially how we think, how we see the world. It's, to me, it is, um, it's, it's refashioning our thinking around that central claim. If Jesus is Lord, then how do we see the world? How do we negotiate circumstances? How do we see each other? Uh, how do we think about issues? Given the fact that Jesus is Lord, I think that's, that's how I try to explain it to students or help them to understand, uh, you know, the, what we're talking about when we say uh, the mind of Christ or the Christian mind or thinking as a Christian. I think that's bedrock for me. This might be a really scary thought experiment, but what if I asked, how do I have the mind of Mr. Shelton? Um, what is the mind of Mr. Shelton? And without being Mr. Shelton, I probably would have to ask him. <laughs> so as I think about the mind of you Christ, you know better than that. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> no you, one wants that. You would not. Yeah, yeah. You would have to ask. You know, you know exactly what to. <laughs> Maybe with the mind of Christ, we would ask and 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 have Jesus tell us what it means to have the mind of Christ. So I, I thought of two verses. Um, in Matthew chapter six, Jesus says, "No one can serve two masters." Verse twenty-four. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Uh, You can't serve God and money. And in verse 33, he says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. So I I think the mind of Christ is, on on one hand, the abandonment uh, of, of anything that's not God and the pursuit of everything that is God. Um, which I think ultimately is uh, about forgetting the self, you know, altogether. Pop, pop psychology would say, ask, ask yourself, ask each other, how are you doing? And we usually end up saying something like, I'm doing well, or uh, I'm yes. doing fine, right? Which there's a danger there maybe of, of being too arrogant um, 
or maybe we would say, well, I'm not doing well, I'm not doing fine, uh, there's a danger there of having a guilt complex. And the Bible tells us uh, we are guilty and we are arrogant. Um, and so really I think the question shouldn't be how am I doing, but to have the mind of Christ is to ask what am I doing? Not how am I doing, but what am I doing? And am I seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and letting everything else uh, take care of itself? I think you bring up an important point there in saying it's having the mind of Christ isn't how am I doing, but what am I doing? That idea that the mind of Christ isn't just an intellectual exercise. Like you were saying, how does it affect every single thing that I do? Seek first God's kingdom and righteousness and all these other things will be added. And so having the mind of Christ is this idea seeking the kingdom first and foremost. All the other things will take care of themselves. But that mind of Christ leads us, because he's Lord, to seek all things. Scott, you have any ideas? Sounds like though, you, could, you could have asked the question, so what is sanctification? And, it, and everything we've said so yeah. far, and, and that ties into exactly what I was going to say, the mind of Christ, or us receiving the mind of Christ, is kind of implicit in this idea of, uh, of discipleship. That if we submit ourselves to Christ, that if we pledge ourselves to follow Christ, if we take up our cross and do so, that ultimately what we receive is not just a new set of rules that we are to follow, a new set of Ten Commandments that can be a burden upon us, but we're, we're promised and delivered uh, a transformation. We are made into something new. We are made the image of our Savior, of our Creator. Uh, and so in so doing, we, we take on not just uh, a new set of moral precepts, but we actually are given new faculties. And we are able to to see through his eyes, to think with his mind. Yeah, and, and I tried to bring that out in the in what I said in the introductory comments, that Scripture tells us both that we have the mind of Christ, and it also tells us have the mind of Christ as a command. And so it's something that we do possess, but there is still that sin nature that we're overcoming that we have to renew it. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, later in Romans 12. Our minds have to be renewed. And we have to use it. We have to put it in practice. Right. Um, and of course, part of the, part's implicit in the discussion of why I talk about a Christian mind is, uh, you know, there, there's so much of uh, what people understand about following Christ uh, usually has to do with experience or feelings or those sorts of things. Uh, otherwise, you know, and that's... And that's why it's an, even an issue today, why people talk, what, what, what is the Christian mind? Well, why would we even talk like that if it weren't the fact that the Christian mind is atrophied um, and needs to be recaptured? Uh, so I think that's what I find interesting. Uh, years, a few years back, um, there was a, a, several books out on, on the waning of the Christian mind and uh, the death of Christian intellectuals and even the, uh, the panning of, of, of Christian intellectuals or pursuing intellectual pursuits in the name of Christ. I was wondering what you guys maybe, I don't know, because I, is that still a thing? I mean, is that still out there? Is, have we turned a corner, do you well, think? It was interesting because you, you mentioned some of those. Uh, Harry Blamires, who was a student of C.S. Lewis, writes The Christian Mind, lamenting the loss of the Christian mind. Os Guinness, Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, where we've lost the Christian mind. James Sire, Habits of the Mind. So there were all of these books. And I do think it's a good question. Do people even care anymore? Because I can't think of any books that have been written in the last 10, 15 years where this issue is taken up. 
Uh, so I think yeah. that is a good question. Well, I think I think that what we're doing, the classical Christian movement, was sort of a birthed out of that that you know famine, if you want to think of it that way. Mm-hmm. We're all these people writing these books, uh, and I think Christ, classical Christian movement probably came out of that. A, a renewal of yes, we need to recapture being good thinking Christians. I I think within at least the, the Christian circles in which which I circulate, which admittedly is a, you know, not necessarily the, the mainstream or the, the norm of kind of Christian practice. But I, I feel like, you know, 20 years ago we were debating, you know, hey, we really need to develop this because there was this sense that while Christianity was still kind of the, you know, cultural expectation 20 years ago, though that was in decline, uh, you know, there were, you know, some thinkers who were kind of sounding the alarm saying, hey, guys, we're we can see ahead a few decades and if we don't start developing this uh, you know, we might lose some of this forever and, and not have the ability to replace it I think you know thinking Christians nowadays it, it's no longer a question that we need to you know be up on our apologetics for instance to live in this culture it's it's manifest to anyone who tries to live the Christian life because Christianity at least you know traditional Christianity where you know it's not just a you know a ritual observance but actually a way of life uh, that has be, you know, it's it's part and partial to living that now because we live in a culture that is is does not assume Christianity. Uh, so if we're going to live in this culture, if we're going to interact in this culture, if we're going to speak about our faith really at all uh, to people who don't share it, uh, we, we need to develop that mind. We we have to practice those. Uh, that's why even, you know. Uh, your fairly mainline the omega churches in our area teach apologetics classes now because uh, anyone who's tried to have a water cooler conversation at their workplace uh, and mention their faith has you know, been reminded in recent years of the need for that. Playing devil's advocate a little bit uh, is teaching apologetics enough? Does teaching apologetics just teaching apologetics because that's that's simply this idea of, of trying to win them to our position, but that that doesn't seem to me to be the totality of thinking Christianly. Yeah, no, no and, I, and I certainly wouldn't say that you know, that, that that's sufficient. Uh, but you know, the fact that you know even even kind of the larger churches, which are often slow to adopt, you know, especially kind of intellectually niche, uh, act, you know, parts of. Uh, Parts of Christianity, uh, the fact that even they are kind of recognizing the need for that and pushing that on the congregation shows that you know Christians living in today's culture are more aware than ever that yeah my my faith can't just be a purely emotional exercise like I I need to at least be able to answer the questions that people have for me because those questions are coming at us harder and faster than they ever have before. I, I think the, sometimes we think the battle is. The, our battle is against faith, right? And so it's like this struggle between, okay, am I going to have like an intellectual faith or am I going to have a more heartfelt, emotional, spiritual faith? I think our faith is all of those things. The answer is yes. I think yes. Our, I think, <laughs> and so I think what I see in the church uh, in, in, you know, and recently, in, in the history of the church, I see it as, as a battle, a war uh, that's, that's a spiritual battle between bad ideas, uh, many of which are this sort of dualistic tendency to think I'm this or that. Uh, I think there's a there's a battle against the sort of Gnostic tendency mm-hmm. to think that my faith and, and the pursuit of that is really just uh, trying to get from point A to point B as quickly as I can um, and, and thinking that um, 
in thinking that uh, I, God has put me on this earth so that I can just sort of bide my time to get to the next place. Um, and I think what we forget is that our faith is more real than that. Our faith is more tangible than that. Uh, it's, it's about the here and now. Uh, our faith is uh, an embodied faith. It's a, it's a full-bodied faith uh, that God wants us to actively engage in and pursue. It's funny, she mentioned that all my years as a pastor, youth pastor, how many times I heard, well, they have a, uh, a head knowledge yeah. of Jesus. Do they have a heart knowledge of Jesus? Or do you have a, you know, and, and I would always say, why do those have to be separate? Uh, I think part of having a Christian mind is, is uniting those two, realizing that the more we come to know, if I mean, you can just study Jesus if you want as a subject, but... As a follower of Christ, I think the more we study about him and know him, the better we will indeed know him. Can I quote C.S. Lewis? Of course I can. <laughs> you don't tell me no. For mere Christianity, and I remember reading this the first time, and it was, it was just, yes. It says, God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than of any other slackers. <laughs> if you're thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. But fortunately, it works the other way around. Anyone who's honestly trying to be a Christian will soon find his intelligence being sharpened. One of the reasons why it needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity is an education itself. Hmm. Hmm. And I've seen that in so many places, in so many ways with students over the years who, uh, who because they love the Lord, just they, they, their minds just sharpen and tighten and and they just want to know and they want to know for the right reasons you know to 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 not just as we were talking earlier just to be able to defend the faith but to see the world rightly and it's a joy that comes along with that yeah yeah i think that you brought this up but that dichotomy head knowledge heart knowledge is a false dichotomy yeah mm -hmm. uh i think of romans chapter eight and i'll read that real quick and this is what paul says just for those who live according to C.S. Lewis, I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're doing secondary sources here as well. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Paul, I think, very clearly is connecting heart knowledge and head knowledge, and I, I think Paul is is saying there that. Uh, there, there is no difference. That the desire to live righteously, the desire to live obediently, is part of what it takes for our minds to be renewed and transformed. I think a symbol of this full-bodied, embodied faith is the dinner table. That as we sit around the dinner table, we get to hone and sharpen and experience that sort of spiritual side of things like you were referencing we have fellowship we have love we have uh, a conversation um, and community but we also through that are sharpening our minds um, we're we're honing our our intellectual skills we're learning how to uh, speak we're learning how to reason and argue perhaps uh, how to how to defend ourselves and 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 you know, stand on our own two feet. And so I think the dinner table is a good symbol of this. And I think you find this embodied faith in the meal as well, that we're being Right, I was going to say, fed, you also have food. That we're tasting. <laughs> when, when, when Jesus is resurrected, 
uh, one of the first questions he asks his disciples is, do you have anything to eat? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they give him fish to eat because he's not a ghost. And so I think we, we, we find our faith in the bread and in the wine that we're consuming. And I think in, in, in turn, it's also consuming us. It's, it's recreating us, transforming us into uh, the fully embodied person, the image of Christ that, that we're, we're called to be. We've touched on it a little bit, but the books that were referenced a little bit earlier, all of them argue that the greatest threat to the church is anti-intellectualism. Um, and we, again, we, we touched on this a little bit, but I'd like to go back to it. Uh, in your all's opinion, is that still one of the greatest problems facing the church? Or have we moved past that? Or where I, are we? I think, I think those books bore some fruit, in other words. I, I think there has been, in some ways, a, a renewal in, in many ways. I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of places where you know, the intellect is seen as the enemy of faith, and that's another one of those false dichotomies you know, that sees faith as resolutely shutting your eyes to fact and believing what you know ain't so. Uh, <laughs> but I think more and more, uh, because of what Scott said about uh, you know, the culture in which we live now, We've kind of circled the wagons a little more as churches and realized that, uh, wow, this is, there, is, there, there are bad ideas out there and there are, they think that need to be combated. And I think, like I said, the classical Christian movement coming out of that, because those books were written before there was this classical Christian right. resurgence and movement uh, that people wanted to see their students, their kids grow up, uh, you know, with, with robust minds and Christian minds and learning to think and all of that. So... I'd say it's still a big one. Uh, I'd say one of the bigger enemies now, and of course this has to do with having a Christian mind, is aligning ourselves politically is one of the biggest dangers to the church today. Uh, How we kind of, we'll take being a Christian and align it with being a particular political party or with a particular platform. Uh, But that of course goes to the Christian mind. If you don't know how to think, if you don't know how to think as a Christian, if you can't separate those two, then there's... There's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the reasons that those authors identify anti-intellectualism as such a big problem is that it tends to spawn other problems. In other words, when our when our minds are soft, uh, we allow all sorts of other things to, to take root in the church and take root in our lives and take root in our spiritual practice. Uh, so I think... You know, looking at modern churches, I think I do see some churches that you know, have took those dire warnings and, and made necessary changes. I think movements like the classical Christian movement are a response to that. And then there are other churches that took no heed of that. Uh, and as a result, uh, I'm not sure I would say that anti-intellectualism is their biggest problem, at least not anymore. Uh, many bigger problems have since taken root uh, because... You know, once you once you no longer have clear ideas of, for that matter, even what it means to be a Christian, it's so easy to be led astray into various forms of idolatry. Whether it's worshiping a political party, whether it's uh, you know, essentially you obeying or submitting yourselves to the authority of something that is other than Scripture, uh, all of these other problems start to to take or become manifest and take root not just in individual churches but in denominations and movements. So if we're not able to think, we open ourselves up to a whole host of yeah. other problems. And I, I, would like, I like that you use the word idolatry. Yeah. Um, and, and if I can name drop here too, of course, C.S. Lewis, I would say, 
but I would drop a name N.T. Wright, um, and, and what I have to kind of say about this in my thinking would just come from him. Um, I think for some people, our faith is a sort of pantheistic worldview in which um, is a form of idolatry that ultimately, said, that ultimately says, I am God. Um, and because we find God in everything, but ultimately I find God in myself, right? And then we have Jesus uh, who says, not my will, but yours. Uh, we have Paul saying about Jesus that he emptied himself. But too many of us think we look at our faith as uh, this is uh, I am God and it's, it's my rules. It's the way I, I want to do things, um, I think, is really just a form of idolatry that perhaps anti-intellectualism then would, would stem from. Why study? Why get to know if really what I'm just wanting to know is myself? Uh, I think on the other side of the coin, you have this sort of deistic uh, you know, thinking where, you know, you've got uh, people who just sort of pay lip service to the big guy in the sky, right? The sort of mm-hmm. old man with the white beard sitting on his wispy throne doling out punishments. Um, and, you know, we just sort of try to play by his rules as best we can. But really what we're looking for is a kind of Santa Claus figure who's just going to give us what we want when we want it. And so we don't take, these sorts of people don't take their faith seriously uh, because God is this distant, you know, far off mm-hmm. God um, and so there would be a sort of anti-intellectualism with regards to, to this form of, of idolatry. Uh, again, why pursue? Why, why try to get to know he's too distant, he's too far away? Yeah, that's good. And I think, you know, implicit in kind of the idea that there's a danger in the church becoming anti-intellectual, I think one of the greatest dangers of that is that, um, you know, and there are lots of ways that churches can, go, can, uh, can lose their way and can cease to embody the gospel. But one of the peculiar dangers of uh, being anti-intellectual is that we can lose a sense of even what we are, uh, of who it is that we follow. And the, and the danger, I guess, of that is that we can also lose the way back. Uh, if the church goes too far down that road, if we fail to even define what it means to be a Christian, which is ultimately, in some level, a, a, an intellectual uh, ide- or exercise about ideas, uh, then we can, over time, simply cease to understand even what it would mean to be a Christian uh, and fail to be able to, to find our way back, even from our errors. Um, you know, I think, I, th- I think we need to acknowledge, though, you know, the, the sentiment behind you know, a lot of American Christianity, especially to be anti-intellectual, you know, because of all of the carnage uh, left behind uh, bad intellectualism, right. uh, bad ideas uh, that had come out of the academy and the ivory towers. And so, I mean, I understand the, the knee-jerk reaction to say that it's the intellect that has caused that. Uh, and of course, what we're trying to do with, you know, with this podcast and schools and all these things we're talking about is to is to say no. You don't throw the baby out of the bathwater, mm-hmm. baby, baby Jesus. You don't, <laughs> you don't you don't do that. Uh, it's it's the intellect apart from Christ. Uh, so I think it's rehabilitating that that understanding that no, you know, Christians need to be good thinkers too. It doesn't have to lead to all this stuff that has made us knee jerk react away from. Uh, intellectualism. Uh, so I can see where you know why people have gotten to that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of the reason you see that reaction ultimately is that's rooted in fear. 
I think there are a lot of people who fear that if we actually do engage as Christians in an intellect in this these intellectual realms, that we're ultimately going to lose. That we don't have the truth on our right. side. It's ultimately a failure of faith. Uh, but I think you know through types of styles of education like this, through uh, you know, churches more thoroughly embracing and act, honestly rediscovering yeah. uh, the the Christian mind and the fact that no, there there is a consistent Christian worldview to be yeah. had. Uh, we can kind of we give comfort and and security in that no look we we can we can engage in intellectual discussion we can engage in argument we can we can encounter the world on that level and Christians have nothing to be ashamed of in doing so. When I talk to families, uh, interview students or whatever, what that what always surprises them is that I'll tell them I'll say well we'll be able to have discussions around these tables that you can't have in public school. There are you know you we're not afraid. Of any idea, bring it. Let's let's talk about it. Uh, whereas that can't happen in a lot of right. public school settings. And it's interesting. Even in teaching the seniors, there are sometimes we'll get to a topic, and they'll be a little hesitant. And I'll remind them, no, we can talk about it. <laughs> you're you're free to do that here. We we want to share these ideas. We want to think them over and work through them. Uh, that, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. One of the big things that happens in ninth grade in uh, Bible interpretation, which is one of the classes I have the joy of teaching, is uh, there's always a point in the year where the students realize that they might disagree with me about something in the Bible, and that's okay. <laughs> this is not a, well, no, this is, uh, you know, everything from, from my mouth is the absolute unquestioned, no, Christians are going to discuss this, we're going to debate this, and at the end of the day, we're still Christians, we're still brothers and sisters. This is part of the exercise. Uh, oftentimes, I'll, I'll take an early in the year a devil's advocate position on mm -hmm. something that I know will 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 rile them just a little bit, just so we can we can experience that earlier. That no, we, we need to be able. You need to be able to disagree with me, right. uh, because in that disagreement is where not only you but possibly me are going to come to a better understanding of the truth. And and you also train them in that disagreement. It's not because of what you feel. <laughs> exactly. you, you've got to think. You've got to be reasonable. You've, you've got to use scripture. You've got to understand it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's how we, we train them in the use of the tools that find the truth. Is it just a... This is not a visual. Because people, can't, people can't see this. <laughs> I will this. take a picture. Yeah, people can't it. see this, but right behind you is the scandal of the evangelical mind. Mark Noel, right behind your head. And he says the yes. scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is no evangelical, evangelical mind. mind. Right. Why it's ironic that it's sitting on top of a book called The Christian Mind. Well, that's obviously the books I used in preparing okay. for right. so it. Wasn't a it's a visual for us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit and uh, Aaron, you teach the, the rhetoric students, uh -huh. and so part of your responsibility is teaching them to reason, teaching them to make arguments. Uh, I see, and, and Rob, what you said about the political uh, involvement of Christians today, somewhat unthinking, I think part of the scandal of the evangelical mind is we have become protesters as opposed to being people who know how to truly defend our faith. People know more what we're against than they know uh, what we're for. You all see that, Aaron? Do you address that at all in your rhetoric courses? Um, well, I think what I would say I 
I address in the rhetoric class is Jesus is a, a table turner. All right, he, he overturns expectations. Um, he questions assumptions. Uh, and if I'm trying to do anything in that class, I would say that that's what I'm trying to accomplish. Um, I was thinking about Jesus's words again uh, with regard to this question. And I, I was reflect, I've been reflecting the past few weeks on the Beatitudes. I think I was talking with mm -hmm. you about this on the boardwalk, but uh, given this political climate that we're in, we've been kind of referencing that, uh, I, I found it an important reminder that Jesus says, not blessed are the peace wanters, not blessed are the peace desirers, uh, the peace hopers. I think we all hope for peace. We all long for peace. Uh, those echoes are, are uh, those longings for uh, wholeness, I think is uh, part of what it means to be human. So we're not, all of us of course are desiring this thing called peace, but Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And so maybe in my class, ultimately what I would be trying to accomplish is that we would be training up young men and women to go out into this world and not just long for peace, but go out into this world and make peace. One of the things I have to talk about with our debaters, of course, because uh, they're, you know, they're, they're a smart group of students, but they're also a very competitive group of students and uh, engaging in debate in a competitive environment against other schools kind of trains that in them mm -hmm. is that ultimately we are called not just to uh, to go and to destroy bad ideas, but to defend good ones. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we are not called, if you will, on the intellectual front to be Vikings going and raiding the nearby villages and, and you know, setting fire to everything. Uh, we're, we're called to defend the citadel. Uh, and to do that as Christians, we have to first understand the ideas that we claim to defend. We need to have a conception of this is what the Christian worldview is. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what we this is what we believe in, why we believe it. Uh, and I think the temptation, probably not just in our culture in this day and age, but probably in every day and age, is to do the far simpler, no, we're just going to go out and we're just going to own the other side, we're just going to you know, set fire, we're going to protest. Uh, when we as Christians first and foremost need to understand that, no, we're, we're called to, def to defend the truth and to, therefore to embody it. And that means that there are going to be certain tactics the world employs and in the short term might be effective that we can't have any part of. Uh, we're not ever going to be propagandists. Uh, we, we, need to be, we need to be careful, we need to be considerate, we need to be winsome, and ultimately we need to base our arguments in truth and evidence and fact. If I could quote C.S. Lewis here, and I don't have it in front of me, so forgive me if I botch this. <laughs> Rob it's, will tell you. Yeah, he'll know. Yeah. It's, from, it's from his book, The Weight of Glory, and I think it's either page 52 or page 58. He says, to be ignorant and simple now, not to be able to meet the enemies on their ground, Bottom one. <laughs> would, be, would be to uh, betray our uneducated brethren who have under God no defense but us against the intellectual attacks of the heathen. And then he says, good philosophy must exist, if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. And I think that that's what we're called to as mm. Christian and, and Christian thinkers. Yeah, there you go. Sorry to say <laughs> You quoted it exactly. I, I hope I did okay. Yeah, you did great. That was impressive. Yeah, that was, that was impressive. That I knew you were going to quote It's because I, I, I pray for, for the mind of Mr. Shelton. I ask, what does it mean to have Mr. Shelton's mind? Yeah. Throw that in there. Uh, you know, it's uh, years ago, it was in a, a Mars Hill audio uh, 
I was and I can't tell you who I was listening to being interviewed but it was it was along the lines of the Christian mind and how we train students and things um, and and it was interesting because it was a grammatical example in that most of the time people think of Christians uh, as doing things adverbially or mm. adjectivally we, we just set the adverbs and the adjectives the world sets the nouns and the verbs and we just provide adverbs mm. uh, and adjectives mm. where where forming a Christian mind is is where you we we transition from just thinking how do we do this well Christianly to well we, you know Jesus you know it, it is if he is the creator if God created through him and he is Lord then we should be the noun setters and the verb setters mm-hmm. hmm. uh, and I'll let people just kind of mull on that you know because it I can still see where I was driving while I'm listening to this thing. Mm. By the way, so long ago it was a tape, a cassette <laughs> tape uh, in the car, but uh, I mean, it just struck me. Uh, and, you know, as a youth pastor and doing things I was doing, I was always trying to help students in that, in that regard, if you want to think of it that way. That no, don't, don't just sit down and take how the world says things are. You know, we can, through our mind and through scripture and through, we, we, we know how the world is. Yeah, yeah, and that question of how the world really is 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 fundamental. Correct. And and defining that and being able to define that, I think you're right. Uh, you know, as a as a classical Christian school, we don't want to be a sanctified public school. We don't want to be a school where we do things exactly the way the world does them, but we'll have a chapel every once in a while. It's a completely different way of thinking about how the world really is. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of you know, this all classical Christian thing, of course, everyone listening probably knows at least a little bit of who Dorothy Sayers is. Um, and she, uh, she said it's fatal to let people suppose that Christianity is only a mode of feeling. Mm-hmm. It's vitally necessary to insist that it is first and foremost a rational explanation of the universe. Mm-hmm. I think that would blow most people's minds. Uh, why do you believe in Christianity? Because I believe it is first and foremost a rational explanation <laughs> of the universe. I think that would just shatter people's you know, paradigms in a, in, in a lot of ways. And I don't think most Christians even think that way. Uh, they think of it as sort of a private, you know, uh, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to disparage uh, the, the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, but most people think of it as just a, a private sort of uh, transaction they've had with God through Jesus that's going to get them into heaven, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, a Christian mind recognizes that no, this is true on all fronts, a rational explanation of the universe. There's a lot of outworkings of that obviously but uh, uh, that was stunning for me as well the first time I encountered that. I think of something practical in our culture today our culture can't define what it means to be human and identity and all of these other sorts of things they're, they're confused about the very fundamentals but as followers of Christ with the Christian mind we start with the foundation of we are created in God's image and human beings are image bearers. And that, 
then sets the tone for our understanding these questions. Instead of accepting the secular assumption about the human person. <laughs> that we're just consumers. I think it would blow most people away to, yeah. to try to have to think beyond their, their consumerism. But, you know, we are what we purchase, if you want to think of it that way. But to think beyond that, I think most people never do. Mm-hmm. I've kind of followed up on that. I think that's why it's important that people understand and that it's important that we convey through this education that the Christian mind or the Christian worldview is not just uh, you know, something that those who regard themselves as intellectuals need to concern themselves with. And we can kind of get this idea that uh, you know that the Christian mind or the Christian worldview is really about Christian intellectualism for that you know five ten percent of the of you know the uh, of the culture or the the people who attend our churches who first and foremost kind of think of themselves as thinkers. Uh, no, it's something that all of us need to pay at least some mind to. Uh, you know, there, there is no part of our lives or part of our identity that, that Christ doesn't lay claim to and uh, doesn't intend to transform if we will hand it over to him. Uh, so even those who don't think of themselves as intellectuals, who you know, may, the thought of reading a, you know, a big book on theology isn't something that they enjoy or, that they enjoy or you know, view with relish the way perhaps we do, uh, it, it's still important, uh, and that means it's important that we, as the church, that we as educators, uh, provide those opportunities for them as well. And we're not called to be equal theologians and philosophers, but we're called to be good ones. Mm-hmm. So not everyone's going to be as adept at any of these things. Some people have giftedness in that direction, but I always tell the students, I say, "Look, whether you like it or not, you're a theologian. You're just a good one or a bad one. Mm-hmm. You have bad ideas or right ideas or." Whether you like it or not, you're a philosopher. You're, you're either a good one or a bad one. <laughs> not that you're going to be all the same. And I think people listening might think that, oh, I can't get to that. I don't, you know, I can't arise, like you said, to, to, to that level of wanting to sit with a tome of theology or philosophy and smoke a pipe. No. Uh, that's what people kind of think. Right. Uh, and it's not. It's, it's just using the, the minds that God has given us to... To renew and, and rethink and yeah, not everyone's going to be equal, but everyone yeah. has to be good good at it. Yeah, I I think similarly, if I applied that to myself and to different areas, I, whether I want to be or not, uh, and whether I'm a good one or not, I'm a husband uh, and I'm a father, um, and so my desire is that I would be a good one and not a bad one. And I think. Uh, for that to happen, I have to understand that uh, love is something I both submit to. God's word is something we we submit to, um, but also love is something I do. Um, and despite all of the the foibles and the flaws, um, when when I'm loving someone, I'm loving them maybe in spite of that, and even because of that. Uh, and I had to. So so I think to be a better Christian thinker, a better theologian, is to is to love, right? And uh, maybe that's what I would try to encourage students to do as well, is to find that love for God's word. So if I have to read this. uh, Read away. Because I was reading it this morning. (laughs) And this is just, for me, some of like the best words I think I've ever read in all of literature uh, as it relates to um, Wait a minute, that's not C.S. Lewis. Being a Christian thinker (laughs) and loving. This is uh, N.T. Wright, and I referenced him, him earlier. Uh, He's talking about the Bible. He says, it's a big book full of big stories with big characters. They have big ideas, not least about themselves, and they make big mistakes. 
It's about God and greed and grace, about life, lust, laughter, and loneliness. It's about birth, beginnings, and betrayal, about siblings, squabbles, and sex, about power and prayer and prison and passion. And that's only Genesis. <laughs> and for me, this when I was reading that this morning, just renewed in me this this sense of of God and His Word, and and the love for those two things. Yeah, and that it, I think it is important. You've emphasized it, but to say it again, the the fundamentals of the Christian mind start with God's Word. We're not talking about developing a philosophy simply rooted in reason our foundation is is god and his word he he has chosen to make himself known to us and how silly would it be not to take advantage of of that and also recognizing that there is no conflict between those uh you know which is you know often the way our culture looks at it that christian intellectualism is a you know a intellectualism that you know uh, compromises reason in order to embrace God's word, whereas we acknowledge that, no, reason only finds its fulfillment when it, uh, when it embraces God's word as, as one of the sources of truth. Sounds like all those ancients, you know, do we believe so that we may know, or do we know so that we may believe, or... Right. Yes, I feel like we should distribute yes. bingo cards. Yes, C.S. Lewis, Saint <laughs> Augustine, Saint Augustine, <laughs> Yes, uh, bingo. All right, cool. <laughs> the Apostle Paul's the free speech. Well, now that we've devolved to bingo, uh, <laughs> any any final thoughts you all would like to share in thinking about the Christian mind? I have maybe a final question. Sure. Could, and that is, you know, we've talked a lot about the Christian mind, but we haven't mentioned how, how we can develop it better. Uh, and certainly that's something that uh, the people in this room ha have given a lot of thought to as educators. So in other words, uh, the question I would, I would suggest is, you know, it, it, so supposing that we have convinced our audience that the Christian mind is important, how can they begin developing it? Well, one thing we've done in this conversation is name dropped and we've thrown <laughs> some book titles out there. Uh, so, you know, perhaps that might be something I would say or encourage. Of course, probably you should read the Bible, you know, if you want to understand the Bible. But uh, the book I just quoted from is a book called Simply Christian. Hmm. Uh, and I would rec recommend that. And I'll put that on the, it'll be on the front page when people go and, and listen. So. Yeah. And, and in this vein, then, of course, Mere Christianity by, by C.S. Lewis. I think both authors are trying to accomplish the same task of helping us mm. understand what it means to just simply live the Christian life. You know, it is funny that, you know, there's there's books out there on how to do that, you know, mm -hmm. on how to, but, but I think what does happen and what we've kind of discussed by, you know, bringing up all these names and all this, I think all of us have in common just sort of more of an organic process that came with the, you know, as we studied scripture more and, uh, you know, loved Jesus more as we grew there was just a I think what happens out of that is just the desire to you know I want more I want more and people around us other men and women who have grown further than us recommend books and say well, hey have you read this and have you read that and I think that's why we're here we mm. you know in, in in a large way what we're doing with the students is not recommending them but force feeding them <laughs> uh, which sometimes can cause them to throw up but uh, but in many ways, I think that's kind of how all that happens. It's just a, 
you know, how, how all of us have just, you know, we've never all sat together in one thing about how to develop a Christian mind, but right, it all, you know, it's... Yeah, well, Aristotle has a quote, something to the effect that education is about teaching students to love what they ought. Yes. Uh, yeah, and, and so that's part of it. And, and I think to, to your question, Scott, going to Romans 12, obviously, 1 and 2, uh, Paul begins not with renewing your mind, but presenting your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Mm. So I think that connection between obedience and a desire for yep. obedience is essential. You're not going to truly develop a Christian mind unless you are aimed at living in obedience mm. to, to, to Christ. And then from there, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that connection between a desire to live a godly life and a desire to think differently, to think Christianly, they're intimately connected. I think imitation is a helpful word here, uh, that I would seek to imitate Christ, mm -hmm. uh, to be like him. And so that's an important word. I think too, uh, that happens tangibly for people, for me anyway. I, I live in Texas because Mr. Shelton is here. <laughs> so I think maybe we use the word saint, or we use the word uh, mentor, uh, or we use the word uh, hero of the faith. Of course, we talk about in Hebrews, or we see in Hebrews. I think, I think by surrounding yourself in your life with men and women who have gone before and who have sought to imitate Christ, and we imitate them and we, and we follow this pattern, uh, all, all for the sake of, of being like Christ, uh, I, I think that's how you grow in maturity as well. I liked Mr. Shelton's analogy to food. Uh, if we were instead talking about how to develop Christian athletes, I'm sure uh, one of the topics that we would come up to is diet. That you know, the things that you put in your body affect the way that that body develops. I think the thing, same th thing is true of our intellectual diets as well. We live as we're often reminded in an information age. It's not necessarily the same as living in an age of truth or wisdom. Uh, it's tempting in this culture uh, with phones constantly in our pockets and laptops that can pull up theoretically anything that we might want to read or think about. Uh, to subsist on a diet of intellectual junk food constantly. Mm. Uh, I, I think it's instructive that no one here referenced a blog post. Uh, and nobody uh, you know, made a mention to, uh, to Twitter as a primary source. That, uh, in other words, uh, you, you guys have all developed an intellectual diet of, of real substance, of, of real meaningful books. And I know that you know, the ones that you name dropped only scratch the surface. You're, you're kind of giving the, the gateway books, if you will. Uh, but I would encourage anyone listening to this, if you're convinced by what we're saying here, uh, you moderate your diet. Think about what it is that you're filling your mind with. Are we constantly filling it with drivel, with whatever instantly comes up on our phone suggested by an algorithm? Or are we being intentional about what we fill our minds with? I th certainly think that Christ would encourage us to, to be mindful about that. Yeah, and I don't think any of the books that have been referenced, they're not hard. No. <laughs> uh, sit down and spend a little time with them. And, and, and that's often just read a page, read two pages. Start somewhere. Uh, and, I, and I think... As, as the mind is renewed, we desire that more and more. Hmm. I want to drop one more book and put it on the list. 
intellectuals don't need God and other myths. Mm. <laughs> uh, it's Alistair McGrath. Yeah, it's a great book. It's a good book. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of coming at it from the opposite angle. You mm-hmm. know, as if we're mm. that's the other half of this that we haven't discussed is that you know people assume that if you get to a certain level in your intellect, then you've outgrown the need for God or you you outgrow the superstition of religion. Uh, so that's kind of background noise out there as well. And I think supposing supposing they are difficult, let's just say, uh, I, I told my students a few days ago, I, I admitted to them that I still get nervous when I speak in front of them. Every day I'm getting nervous then, or I am nervous. And so uh, just encouraging them, I've been encouraging uh, my basketball team this concept a lot too, that uh, it's it's okay to to get outside of your comfort zone and do difficult things. And I've, for myself, I've found a lot of growth and maturity in pushing myself, forcing myself, supposing the books are difficult, uh, I think it's okay to do difficult things. Hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you guys so much for being here, joining me in, in this discussion. And I'm sure we'll have a occasion to do it again sometime soon. Look forward. Thank you. Thank you.